All right, hey everyone. Got a uh, a podcast I was very excited about for a while here. Uh, made it through halfway of the Obi Wan Kenobi Disney Plus Star Wars series, so wanted to get out a couple points on that first half of the season. And as a teacher, you know I had to give a progress report for Obi Wan Kenobi. And then I really dove into some NBA Finals. I'm looking forward to the series starting uh, Thursday night. Uh, this this podcast was originally supposed to go out a little bit earlier, but uh, we lost power last night, and so I uh, had to do some scrambling, figure it out, get it set up. Uh, very tough to do a podcast when you have no electricity. So I hope you enjoy. Feel free to share or not. Thanks for listening. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome back to another edition of the podcast here. So I wanted this podcast to be twofold today. Uh, firstly, I had some thoughts on Obi-Wan Kenobi in the first half of Disney Plus's Star Wars series, continuing the uh, tale of Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan Kenobi that we first saw in the prequel trilogy back in the early 2000s. Um, this cinematography of this show has been remarkable. I have truly loved going back to Star Wars movies, and it it feels like you're watching a Star Wars movie experience. The expansive world building in the series early run has been incredible, and just overall, I have been a big fan. It has been enthralling to watch Ewan McGregor back in this role, and so I know that there certainly could be um, critics of how Disney has handled rebooting this character and bringing Star Wars back to the forefront. And this is really a, a a grand undertaking by Disney and Lucasfilm to bring back Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and get Star Wars sort of rebooted again, because it's now been three years since we had the last um, sequel trilogy hit the theaters. But I've really, really appreciated it. I've loved the hermit aspect of things so far. The fact that uh, Obi-Wan has put aside his Jediing for the present time and in doing so his powers have atrophied, like anything that you would see. Uh, after you set it aside for a while, whether you're talking muscles, abilities, mental capacities. And it has been refreshing for me to have this show that ventures into the idea that Obi-Wan is actually not the Jedi that we remember, and he's not the Jedi that he will be ultimately in the prequel series. Like an athlete after injury, he's going to have to work his way back to being the Obi-Wan that fans fell in love with in the original sequel trilogy and even really getting back to the Obi-Wan that he was as a younger man in the prequel trilogy in the early 2000s. He's got to get his way back into playing shape, one could say. Um, I haven't watched episode three last night, too. Uh, I really love the mention of Obi-Wan having a brother. So he mentioned that to Leia as they're riding in the car uh, or the whatever vehicle it was across the desert mining planet with Freck driving. And... Uh, my first thought for that was more IP for Disney, for Lucasfilm. You can say I definitively did not enjoy the Leia chase scenes that we got in both episodes one and two of this series so far. They were, they just felt incredibly hokey and goofy, ridiculous, any sort of synonyms that could go with those. Um, that these badass villain types characters are not going to catch an evasive nine-year-old. Give me a break. Uh, so, it was the same thing from the first episode of the second one. The only difference being the first one involved Leia running through the woods. The second one involving Leia running through, I forget what the planet was called, Diaz or something. 
uh, and running from Obi-Wan as opposed to running from bad guys. She ain't Usain Bolt, so calm down, Disney. She's not this incredible runner that can evade all these people. And uh, that's th- that. those two parts stood out to me more than any other so far and how ridiculous they were. But the actress herself, okay, so I want to shout out Vivian Lyra Blair here. She has totally sold me on the idea that this is Carrie Fisher as a uh, prepubescent, soon to find out she has force powers or force abilities so round of applause to disney and lucasfilm for the the casting of this young girl because she really does sell it that she could be carrie fisher like from a different universe 40 years ago we also get in episode two why leia believed so confidently in obi-wan at the start of the prequel trilogy and when she believes help us obi-wan you're our only hope we can start to see after these first three episodes why she would hold that thought in her consciousness uh i do have to point out speaking of casting that i really do not appreciate sung kong as anybody other than han from the fast franchise so seeing him as one of these aggressive inquisitors uh give me han and his munchies all day every day over aggressive looking dragon appearing inquisitor kong I enjoyed the second episode ending a lot. That's where Kenobi finds out that Annie is alive. And then we check in on Annie in the Bacta tank. And he's does not look like Hayden Christensen at the end of the prequel trilogy as he's gone through the fires of Mustafar. I was totally here for that. It was magically captivating to, to cut from the sheer terror in Ewan McGregor's face that he finds out Annie's alive to cutting to now deformed, tragically changed Anakin in the tank. I was here for it. It was awesome. It was captivating. The third episode was fire. And if you've watched it, you get the joke. It's a bad dad joke. That third episode was fire. Uh, It was completely enthralling from watching Third Sister to and all her mechanisms behind the scenes to seeing how Leia can escape to... uh, you know, any situation that she's given to Kenobi dueling Vader. And it's, he is Vader at this point because Anakin is all caps gone. Uh, the cute little kid from, uh, the Phantom Menace, the, uh, the struggling late adolescent from attack of the clones and revenge of the Sith. That, that dude is non recognizable at this point. Uh, he is simply unredeemable after he snaps a little boy's neck for no friggin' reason in this third episode. Overall, I feel like this episode is the show. These episodes have picked off very admirably, very terrifically from where we left off from the prequel trilogy, from uh, where we left off Revenge of the Sith, which the ending of Revenge of the Sith is arguably the best of the prequel trilogy. And uh, from Obi-Wan saying, you know, you were the chosen one to... We are connecting the dots and seeing how Anakin ended up the way that he was to ultimately become Darth Vader. This, I feel like this series has done a nice job so far of sort of filling in some of those blanks before A New Hope from Revenge of the Sith. And uh, I will enjoy the, the heck out of the back, of, uh, the back of this series, the back half. I think we're going to maybe see some stuff that we couldn't anticipate in any way. And then we're going to get more Vader. And to this point, James Earl Jones is back, baby. We're getting Vader. I love it. Ewan McGregor, just going back to all his 
self-conflict uh, within his mind of dealing with the fact that he failed Anakin, but he's still got to fight. He's still a Jedi, but he also does not want to mess up anything else in the way that he messed it up for everybody with creating Darth Vader. So just really looking forward to the back half of this series. All right, NBA Finals start Thursday night. I am excited. Really looking forward to these finals. I've enjoyed these playoffs outside of the couple duds that we've had across the board here and there with some blowouts. I am excited. And uh, it, it gets me to my first thought that I had with these NBA finals. Which series would have been better for the league than this? And this finals will have a storied NBA franchise, perhaps the most storied NBA franchise this side of L.A., we also have a super marketable fan favorite, Steph Curry. And for every bandwagon Warriors fan that was molded in the last eight years, congrats, your team's, your quote-unquote, your team's in the finals again. So Celtics, Warriors, I really, the point that I'm going to lay out here is I really think this is the best we could have gotten. This should draw massive ratings. You've got the, the Northeast market. You've got Boston. You've got the Celtics and their national fan base. You've got, again, that bandwagon Warriors fan base from, the prominence that they rose to over the last decade uh, and the West Coast. You're going to pull in Oakland, San Francisco. You're going to get really, really strong ratings, I got to believe. Because on top of that, we also have – it's not the best that it could be, but we have some some really strong – marketable players for the NBA. Obviously, we mentioned Steph Curry. We've got Klay Thompson. Draymond Green is polarizing, um, either good or bad. And then I think the, the the league we'll probably see here is going to capitalize on Jason Tatum over the next six months because as a 24-year-old, which is ridiculous for me to think that he's over a half decade younger than I am at this point, he's got some strong marketability for them. I could see him appearing in a lot of Subway ads over the next six months. So I thought about the alternatives that we could have had in this series instead. LeBron, it wasn't going to happen. Maybe alternate universes, the multiverse, the metaverse, big deal these days. It wasn't happening in this universe. Luka. So the Mavericks were close, but Luka's just not as internationally recognized as Steph, which is interesting, so maybe I should rephrase that. He's not as nationally recognized. Internationally, maybe so. Same deal for Ja, Ja Moran. But the fact that I say Ja and I say Luca really speaks to my point here and that they're not as well-known. They're not going to pull the ratings, the fans, who are maybe casually on the, the cusp of NBA fandom or are not so. Luca and Ja are not pulling it. The Knicks. And then in my notes, I just wrote, ha, 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 ha. That ain't happening. The Nets. So you have the star appeal with the Nets, but I, for one, am really glad that they are still sitting at home. I don't think you should pay or sort of the way that they conducted and put together their team, uh, I was not not a fan of. I don't like the idea of Durant, Kyrie, James Harden was on this team. I, I wouldn't have liked if they were sitting in the finals today just for the way that the team was constructed and all the nonsense that has taken place news-wise for the Nets this season. The Sixers, sort of the same reason. Now, I, I am more of a homer for Joel Embiid. I really appreciate what he brings to the table. I root for Embiid, but I cannot root for the Sixers for the, the reason of Harden. I don't think that's a good look to have a guy in the finals who tanked on two teams, yet was able to earn a trip to the NBA Finals, similar to the way that the Nets had a guy who tanked on one team and 
could have ultimately made the finals. Not that he would have played because Ben Simmons may never play basketball again, but I'm glad the Nets and Sixers are home. And I don't think that they would pull the ratings and be as good for the league as the matchup that we have. Zion, another alternative. Maybe, but probably not. I don't think he's going to pull um, in terms of fans, ratings, uh, enjoyment, consumption as the two teams that we have. Which leads me to the conclusion that this is the best perfect finals. This is the best option the NBA could have asked for. This is, uh, of the options we had this year, maybe the Bucks. I didn't count them in, but they would have probably been the only alternative to what you're going to get with the Celtics. And then in the West, I don't think it gets better than Golden State right now, unless you have the LeBron Lakers. But again, they were a joke this season, an absolute disaster of a train wreck, so they won't go be in it. The best player in the series, I think it's Tatum. Uh, his, his confidence is still evolving, playmaking offensively. His defensive fortitude is what I think really gives him the slight of edge over Steph Curry. That was the conversation, the decision for me was who is the best between those two. I'm perfectly ready to be proven entirely wrong uh, in this series, and I'm glad to watch Steph go off. It's super entertaining. The only player is young as Tatum to win a finals MVP, which would be something that he has a reasonable shot at considering he did win the conference finals MVP when maybe he wasn't the most deserving player, Horford. And um, Horford had a fantastic series and what Smart has brought to that team, but uh, I digress. Uh, if he were to win a finals MVP this season, at age 24, he would become one of only seven guys to do that. Kareem, Duncan, Wade, Kawhi, Walton, and Dennis Johnson, which is a pretty dang incredible list when you're on a list with six other guys, five of them we know by one name. So I do think it's Tatum. So just a slight edge over Curry right now, but again, I'm bracing myself to be very wrong in that it is still Curry and it's his league until further notice at this point. So which player not named Steph or Tatum has the biggest impact in the series? I think it's Mark Smart. He's the defensive player of the year, uh, defense player of the year, meet mega colossal Goliath offensive supernova star, Steph Curry. How Smart works through his screens, set by the Warriors at the top of the key, and how he switches and maintains his focus on Curry will be the ultimate key to the series, I believe. I think his defense and what he brings as the leader of the Celtics defense is going to be the make-or-break factor for this series. Honorable mention to Andrew Wiggins as the uh, player who has the biggest impact on the series for the reason that he'll be guarding Tatum and Jalen Brown primarily, which is a tall task for Wiggins, even as a number one former number one pick, because he moved from guarding John Morant to Luka to now Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. But I still think it's probably Marcus Smart who swings this series. A quick note then on Al Horford, because I thought of him as somebody who could swing this series too. Just the way that he plays defense, his intelligence, his experience. So Horford is borderline Hall of Fame at this point anyway, because the NBA lets in everybody to the Hall of Fame. And you have to consider that he, his college resume is tremendous. His two national championship victories in college. In the NBA, he's one of 14 players with 12,000 points, 7,000 rebounds, 3,000 assists, and 1,000 blocks. It's a very packed category, but there's probably not a ton of folks who are in categories of one of only 14 players to do blah, blah, blah in league history. I think a championship is the only thing that he really needs to cement his legacy. 
and that's to cement his legacy. His legacy has been pretty solid to this point. So if he were to get that one championship, he's a surefire Hall of Famer, um, without a doubt. And going into crazy hypothetical land, if he were to get another championship, I mean, this Celtics team is fairly young, outside of maybe Horford, Smart, a couple of the role players. And they're certainly, if they win this year, going to come back next season with a swagger. If he wins two championships, it's incredible to think about the reputation that Horford will leave this league having accomplished in his basketball career. Best team in the matchup, I went with a split decision here. Warriors for offense, Celtics for defense. It's a lame answer. It's a boring answer. But Warriors have all the guys that know where to be and how to best help on offense. It seems like they have a lot of dudes. I'm not going to say any of their dudes, but it seems like a lot are capable of offensive explosions on any given night. Steph, Clay, Jordan Poole, Wiggins, Kaminga. But then on the other side, defensively, it's a Celtics. Same thing about the Warriors' offense can be said about the Celtics' defense. Guys just know where to be, what to do, how to best help. And 1-5, to five, they can guard anybody on the floor. Having said all that, I'd give the slight edge to the Warriors because even when Steph is being contained, he can still be fairly explosive. You know, Steph containment is 20 points. Steph containment could be 25 points, and he hits six threes. So I'd give the slight edge to the Warriors um, due to that factor. Uh, just one last thought before I give a prediction. This may be it for the Celtics. Their defense is tremendous. Uh, they're vibing at the right time. The East was formidable. They still survived. They triumphed. Uh, and the Warriors can be vulnerable on any given night. Their shots fall. But if their shots don't fall, that's where the Celtics need to capitalize. That's where the Celtics need to take advantage, play tight defense on top of the shots not falling, and come away with four wins in these next seven. Having said all that, I'll take the Warriors in six. I know the Warriors are the Vegas favorite. So I saw that. I may be a bit biased on that factor. But they've also been there before, uh, this core of the Warriors. They're gritty. Draymond is an emotional leader for that team. They're explosive offensively. And in today's league, I think that's ultimately what's what wins. It's, it's not defense. With the three and the way the offense has been emphasized, I think that's the direction to go, and I think the Warriors play right into it. As always, uh, I appreciate everybody listening. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to share if you care. Uh, Otherwise, thanks for listening. Let's all sit back and enjoy some NBA Finals.